LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Jim Elvidge who joins us to discuss his book Digital Consciousness, A Transformative Vision. Our reality is not what it appears to be. The latest physics experiments demonstrate that an objective reality simply does not exist. Despite its immense value to humanity, modern sciences claim that it can account for the depth and diversity of experience and in the foreseeable future explain the fundamental nature of reality goes too far. Modern mainstream science maintains that matter is all that matters and that the seemingly solid three-dimensional world of our five senses is all that there really is. But the list of phenomena adequately accounted for by the physical sciences is outstripped by those it cannot explain and instead simply chooses to ignore. The most profound of these is the riddle of consciousness itself. The best hypothesis proffered by mainstream science is that consciousness is a mere epiphenomenon of the brain, a byproduct which arises when organisms reach a certain degree of complexity. But what if the opposite were true? What if that which we call matter actually arises within mind, a universal sea of consciousness forming the fundamental ground of reality? Not only does this model reflect ancient spiritual and wisdom traditions spanning the globe and reaching back into prehistory, when unified with cutting-edge quantum physics, it forms the basis for an all-encompassing cosmology, offering answers to the eternal questions of existence and the deepest mysteries of life. Hello and welcome, Jim, and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Oh, thank you very much, Greg. It's uh, great to talk to you again. I know we uh, talked a couple of years ago, I think, and uh, it's uh, exciting. I, I think we have like minds, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Excellent. Well, today, Jim, we're going to be talking about your new book, Digital Consciousness, A Transformative Vision. Before we dive into that, for people who don't know, if you could just say a word about your uh, work in general and your background, and then a little bit about the book itself, because it develops many ideas that you set out in your first book, uh, The Universe Solved, which we spoke about. But you've really, you know, brought the ideas together here and moved them on, I think. And in the introduction to the book, actually, you said that was something that you really wanted to do. Oh, sure. Yeah. Thank you um, for the opportunity. So, uh, a little bit of my background, I'm a, uh, an electrical engineer by education and been in the software industry, the high-tech industry for all of my life. That's kind of my day job. Um, but I also have always been fascinated with science, with w- what makes the world tick, with finding the meaning behind things, and have been reading books, alternative books, traditional books on those topics uh, pretty much forever. 
Um, I set out to write a book back in the early 2000s uh, about uh, Einstein and relativity because it was the 100-year anniversary of uh, his, uh, his Nobel Prize. But I ended up kind of you know, heading in a different direction when I realized that the nature of quantum mechanics was very similar to uh, kind of a discrete or digital reality. Um, so that kind of kicked me off into that direction of, you know, wondering, do we live in a digital reality? Um, is it programmatic? Is there something behind it? Uh, so my first book, The Universe Solved, is about that and about the evidence that our re reality is discrete and digital, um, that it's also virtual. Uh, although I didn't really make any kind of, um, you know, conclusion about what's behind it or the nature of the re reality itself. This second book is 10 years later now, and having, uh, you know, the opportunity to talk to different people, read different things, um, you know, people like uh, Tom Campbell and uh, Stephen Kaufman and, and others, collecting, you know, their experiences and, and their ideas and putting it all together, um, it's something that I call digital consciousness. So uh, this, this book explores dozens of categories of evidence that our reality is digital and virtual and that consciousness is more fundamental in matter. Um, it also talks a lot more about kind of the historical human spiritual experience and, and how that lines up neatly with the theory. Uh, in, in addition, I create a kind of a visual model to help people understand what happens when you die, you know, what's going on when people see strange things like UFOs, uh, what is quantum entanglement, and, and all of those kinds of anomalous things. So I think that this book, you know, kind of brings things up to date into where the, these ideas are right now, and, um, you know, that's, that's pretty much a summary. Well, one of the fundamental ideas here, if probably the fundamental idea, is that the mainstream materialist view of reality takes in this idea that consciousness is basically an epiphenomenon of the brain. It's produced by the brain. It's sort of a byproduct. And it's not really any more significant than that. In our talk today, in your book, uh, and in many other talks that I've done on here, we turn that on its head. And as you just mentioned, we posit that consciousness is fundamental and that matter is within mind, basically, not the other way around. So in the light of that, perhaps we could just give us a quick overview. Uh, I know you said a few words about it there, but of your uh, model digital consciousness, because the word digital, again, with the limits of language and thinking, people immediately just start thinking about computers. We're not actually saying here somehow that the underlying our reality is, is an actual computer. And what you mean by digital doesn't necessarily imply what people may think. Yeah, exactly. That's true. And, uh, you know, I also want to kind of p point out that a lot of these ideas aren't really new. Uh, you know, the idea of a virtual reality or a separate consciousness, that goes back to uh, India, it goes back to ancient Greece. Um, and even modern physicists have kind of come to this conclusion, some of them anyway. Uh, Niels Bohr said, everything we call real is made of things that can't be regarded as real. Uh, Albert Einstein said, reality is merely an illusion, albeit a very persistent one. So, so these aren't just sort of, you know, pie in the sky ideas. There's a, a lot of supporting thinking, uh, behind this, and it's not, you know, my original stuff. Um, uh, but basically, um, in a nutshell, we live, I believe, and the evidence supports this, we live in a virtual reality. 
um, what that means is are, there's no real physical objective reality that exists there independent of our consciousness. Uh, we have we have a role in making it happen. We have a role in creating our reality, and that's been uh, that's been shown to a high degree of certainty with quantum physics experiments. Now, some people might say, okay, well, yeah, that's just at the quantum level, but it's it's much more than that. There's, there's no real distinction between quantum and classical level when you, when you think about it. If we're creating something at a you know fundamental level of reality, that's profound. Um, and so that means that it's virtual. And it, it, it also means that um, our consciousness isn't necessarily emanating from the brain. And I, and I think there's a great deal of evidence to support that it's not. There really isn't any evidence to support that there is. So if you just take everything on the basis of the evidence that's out there and, and stay open-minded with that idea, you, you do come to the conclusion that consciousness is separate. Well, there's also a lot of thought in the, you know, in, in various areas of research and, you know, historical, uh, uh, you know, ancient wisdom thinking that, um, you know, that this consciousness is more fundamental, that really what's going on is consciousness is the foundation of everything. It's the foundation of matter. It's the foundation of um, all of what we, we have. So this reality that we're in, think of it like, a, you know, and I don't want to use an analogy that makes it feel like it's running on some computer, because that's, that's not necessarily the case. But it is virtual, and it, and it is separate from our consciousness. So think of it as like a cloud of information, of data, of, uh, you know, you know, fundamental uh, cells of, of consciousness that are, you know, able to run our experiences. We're able to interact with it. Our consciousness is separate from that cloud. It's out there somewhere in a bigger space, which I call all that there is. Some people might call that God. Um, other people call it a non-physical matter reality. It kind of doesn't matter what you call it, but it's out there. That means that we're connected to this, what I call a reality learning lab, which is our apparent physical reality. We're connected to it from the outside, controlling things, using free will, learning, experiencing, um, and, you know, and, and evolving. And the purpose of this is to evolve our consciousness ultimately. And again, that also kind of reflects some of the ancient wisdom thinking. So, you know, the, the basic four tenets of this idea, consciousness is fundamental and primary. It's not an artifact of the complexity of the brain. Um, all matter is just information at the end of the day. In, in our space, in our world, there is no real stuff. And the forces that physics, physicists talk about are rules about how that information interacts with each other. The reality we experience is uh, kind of a simulation. The word simulation is a loaded word, so I'm a little careful with that. It kind of implies that it's artificial in some way, but it's not artificial. It's what we experience. All we know is what we experience. But it is illusory in that sense, and it's designed for us to learn and evolve our consciousness. And, and so, uh, yeah, the system that we live in is digital and uh, discrete and consists at a minimum of the aggregate of all the individuated conscious entities, yours and mine and the dogs and um, every other living thing that uh, can be considered conscious, plus this reality learning lab that we interact with. And the whole system, 
God, all that there is, whatever you want to call it, is driven by some fundamental rule of continuous improvement. So it's constantly trying to evolve itself, and has done that by breaking itself up into these little um, individuated consciousness components that are you and I, and the system that we can play in, which we call life or apparent reality. There's a brilliant quote in your book, I think it's around about page 70 or something from Max Planck, the, the well-known quantum physicist, uh, where, where he basically sets out how, despite our current worldview paradigm, that matter is all that matters, actually, that there is nothing real, quote-unquote, in that sense, nothing physical in the sense that we think of it. As you've just alluded to, when we're, you're talking about ideas, or sorry, using words like information, uh, simulation, which, you, as you said, is very loaded, the word digital, as I mentioned earlier on, this highlights the limits uh, of language itself. And of course, our, we, we think in terms of language. So the limits on our the language that we use to describe things also limit how we think about things. And there's a limit also, not only on our intellect, let's have a bit of humility here, but on our imagination about what can be, as it were. And that's quite often filtered through just through the lens of our times. A thousand years ago, people had different ideas about what was possible. And a thousand years from now, there'll probably be different ideas as well. So taking all that into account, uh, it's no surprise that despite our, some people's, you know, arrogance of thinking that they pretty much got all the answers, that this is very far from the case. And that the sort of thinking that you're uh, setting out does require some leaps in imagination, advancement of intellect, but that in itself could be part of the, the evolutionary process that you, that you say this may all be part of. Uh, yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of good points there you made, Greg. So yeah, the idea of the leaps in information. I I think we make discrete learnings and and evolution of our minds, of our consciousness, and our society in discrete chunks. Uh, it's not always just you know slight improvements here and there. So sometimes it has to be a new idea or uh, a new paradigm, new way of looking at things that get people to think differently. There's a, a concept you're, you're probably familiar with, the Dunning-Kruger effect, which essentially says, you know, people who have a little bit of knowledge think they know everything, but the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And you you see this curve of, uh, you know, as you develop expertise, you realize you know less and less. So back in the, I think it was the 1800s, uh, it was Mickelson once said, um, you know, everything that we need to discover has been discovered. We're just, we're just, looking for, you know, more more details of resolution, a couple more decimal points of, of accuracy. And that was before relativity and quantum mechanics kind of blew up the whole uh, world of physics. So th there's no doubt that we, um, you know, there, there's lots more to understand, lots more to learn. I think it's part of the whole process that we have of, of evolving. And you're spot on about the language. Um, this is something I struggle with all the time. Uh, if I say something like the word digital, it sounds cold and calculating. Um, but what it means is that it's just fundamentally one thing or another. And there, we, we could probably talk quite a bit about, you know, whether reality is digital. And I mean our apparent physical reality, not the deeper level one. Um, there have been a lot of physicists that have gone back and forth. There was uh, even a uh, contest a couple of years ago uh, where people submitted papers to prove or, you know, offer their uh, suggestion or their philosophy on whether it was continuous or digital. And, you know, it, it was really kind of interesting seeing the, the different points of view. But it doesn't mean anything in terms of 
you know, cold and calculating just because deep down it's discrete doesn't mean that it's running on silicon or that it's created by an AI or that it's not beautiful in any way. You know, if we look at a, a movie that moves us or a, uh, you know, beautiful photograph that's digitized, you know, and we look at it on the screen, we still have the same emotional connection to it that we would have if reality were continuous. It, it doesn't really make any difference. So, yeah, language is a tough thing. Uh, when we talk about these things, there's no, you know, unified way uh, of talking about it yet. And I think that's, you know, kind of one of the things that I'm doing and other people are doing is, is trying to put ideas out there that maybe they'll stick. Maybe people will start using digital consciousness instead of, you know, a, a big paragraph to try to explain what it is um, or, or other other terms and get away from using terms like simulation. Well, yeah, I mean, in terms of assimilation and adoption of new ideas, where we are now really, I mean, even though the evidence for a materialist view of the world is very weak, some people say, actually, if you scrutinize it very closely, it's, it's non-existent. But anyway, there's that old adage about science advancing one funeral at a time and there's that you allude to in your book uh, the 30 years to acceptance syndrome you know of, of new information and you also reference the technology adoption life cycle you know once uh quite often new technology comes in and there's the so-called early adopters who are very enthusiastic and it can take a very long time for the wider population to as it were catch up so it can feel very frustrating when you've got and you know, a new concept, new ideas that you feel really move us forward sort of existentially. But 30 years is not a long time. But in terms of your life or my life, it feels like a hell of a long time. It could be like, if we're lucky, a little under half of it. Right. Yeah, it, it is. And, and I, there have been cases I've been wondering is, is that time shrinking um, as we go forward, as we kind of evolve as a society? And it's not really, it doesn't seem to be. Uh, I think Georg Ohm, when he, wrote a paper on what is now considered Ohm's law. Like he was, it was considered heretical. I think he lost his teaching job. Um, he was called a, you know, a fraud and all this kind of stuff. That was back in the 1800s. Uh, it took about 30 years before people recognized that what he did was, uh, what we was, he was pr proposing was, was accurate. And it became an accepted part of science. Uh, same thing happened a hundred years later with, uh, uh, cold fusion. Uh, the, uh, Fleischmann and Pons were just laughed out of the, the business uh, for their assertion that there was a cold fusion reaction. But since then, uh, U.S. Department of Energy and Toyota and MIT and all these reputable organizations and institutions have been doing uh, research with promising results on what they call low energy nuclear reaction, which is just they just put another, uh, you know, another uh, face on it. So. That's following the same cycle, and even in uh, 2012, I think at, at CERN they said it bears further study, and it really the the effect that they saw was real. Um, so they were vindicated 20 years later, but it still hasn't you know kind of taken hold. So so it does seem like that 30 years is is still the case, and I understand it. You know anybody can come up with a theory and put it out there, and you, obviously you're not going to believe everything. Um, so th there has to be a process where it's tested, it's thought about, it's uh, it's peer reviewed, it's this the scientific method in a way, 
Um, but un unfortunately, a lot of scientists only apply the scientific method to materialist ideas and not to other ideas. And that's not being scientific. That's being, you know, dogmatic. So uh, the other point I, I guess I'd like to make is you, you mentioned, you know, evidence to the contrary about things like, like this. Like, is there evidence that the world is materialistic or, or that uh, consciousness is an artifact of the brain? And there isn't any. Um, there just isn't. All, all that neurophysicists uh, or, or uh, neuroscientists can come up with is that they see electrical activity in the brain when people wake up or when they, you know, you know, change their state of awareness or something like that, and they point to that. And that is just crazy. It's kind of like saying, you know, I put an oscilloscope on uh, some circuitry in my television set. And when a program comes on or a program changes, it lights up. doesn't mean that the program is coming from inside of the television set. We know that it isn't. It's coming from a network. It's coming from somewhere else. So that, that argument is the only argument that's made that consciousness comes from the brain. But the, the evidence that it doesn't is substantial. And I just, I spent, I have 10 categories of that. Um, and a lot of it's scientific evidence. Uh, ten categories or so of that in the book. In terms of uh, various cosmologies and explanations uh, for you know what we experience, theories of reality, whether they're religious or scientific or somewhere in between, what the worldviews tend to have in common is a kind of all-encompassing finality. So materialism does actually answer in the same way that a religious worldview does. It does answer a lot of people's needs because we, as a species, we crave certainty. And we fear change, you know, so with all the upheaval that seems to be going on around us, it's kind of reassuring to know that at least at the bottom of it all, we understand, be it scientific or religious, what's what the baseline is, what's what's behind it all. And so even though your digital consciousness thesis is incredibly complete and all encompassing in its way, there are still a lot of questions that it prompts in itself. So, of course, people are going to cling to uh, the worldviews that they currently have particularly when they're very simplistic explainers like materialism or like God made it. Oh, sure. Yeah, you're absolutely right about the, the fear of change. It's built into our DNA. We, you know, we wouldn't have evolved as hunter-gatherers if we were sticking our neck, necks out and, you know, challenging the, the, the saber-toothed cat or whatever that we, we shouldn't be doing. You know, we survive by uh, being careful and cautious and um, avoiding change. And that's why in today's world, change is the one thing you know that's happening. Um, in the high-tech world, it's upside down. You know, we, we tell people, oh, be different, be innovative, be creative, change, do things differently. And it's not in people's DNA. And then you get frustrated that that they kind of respond, you know, based on a fear of change. But that's how how we are. So it's it's a... You know, it's a fact that we have to accept ambiguity in today's world and kind of accept the, the idea that there are unknown things. So the idea of, of getting closure um, is a very materialist idea. Like you said, you know, the, that there's a very finite reason for things. There's no randomness involved. Uh, there's a, you know, definitive place that we go after, after we die and so forth. And maybe that's comforting to some. It's not comforting to me. Um, I'm okay with a little question mark, a little unknown about things. And I think if you can 
accept that in your worldview, accept some uncertainty and ambiguity, it opens you up to uh, some some new kinds of knowledge that you might not otherwise consider. Well, actually, people this far uh, in our talk may be thinking about your book, oh, this sounds, you know, very dense and complex and, and very science-based, science um, but you actually concede in the book, you say, uh, this is a quote, you just say, science isn't for everything. And one thing that's occurred to me many times when I've been reading discussions and debates about the nature of reality is like this thing that this, these ideas aren't scientific. That concept isn't scientific. And I thought, why does everything have to be quote unquote scientific? For example, that the science and philosophy are considered kind of like separate branches of thinking in the same way that I suppose that materialism, religion are, but I always saw the, these areas as, as like, like a Venn diagram. There is overlap. And mm -hmm. as you alluded to earlier, the, the, the idea, some of the ideas you're putting forward in your book are not new at all. They're, they're contained within some of the ancient wisdom traditions. And uh, ironically, taking a step back and looking at developments, current developments, well, certainly probably from at the start of the era of quantum physics, that science and spirituality have kind of been pointing to some of the same things. They've been trying to say the same things. They're certainly grasping for the same thing, and there is common ground there. And I think that the separation between those realms that has dominated the, the modern era, it didn't always used to be quite so polarized, and I think that's changing again. And, and again, in your book, you acknowledge this, and I think that as scientific as your book might sound you know, with a quick, quick overview of it, <laughs> you are trying to integrate a lot of things here yeah, it's it's interesting. Somebody once asked me, um, who did I write the book for? And it really made me pause because, honestly, I hadn't thought about that when I wrote it. And it was that's probably something I should have thought a little bit more about. You know, know your audience before you, you know, start writing things down. Um, but in thinking about it, I think I, I, I'm still trying to convince. I'm still trying to get the people who are on the fence about, you know, uh, some of the ideas that we're talking about, get them to kind of think about moving away from the materialism uh, side of things. So I, I do try to make it scientific in that sense. Um, and we can talk about how the book is scientific that way. But you're right. They don't, you don't have to look at it that way. You could look at it as philosophy. If science isn't your bag or you don't buy the science or whatever, that's perfectly fine. You can consider this a philosophy. And you can adopt the philosophy even without considering all the evidence, but the evidence might just make you feel good about the philosophy. And it's interesting that, you know, what do scientists have to have to be called a bona fide scientist? A PhD. What does that stand for? Doctorate of Philosophy. Uh, it used to be that science and philosophy were, like you said, one of the, one and the same thing. And then we went through this you know, Western materialism phase for a few hundred years after the Enlightenment. And I think you're right. I think we are kind of moving away from it. I think quantum mechanics is giving a lot of scientists a, a kick in the butt that that reality isn't quite what they thought it was. It wasn't that deterministic and that reductionist. Um, and it's a really profound thing. And people are having a hard time letting go of this set of maxims that they've you know, built the foundation of their education on, um, you know, for, for many, many years. Well, let's, uh, we've discussed a few issues, a few problems with the, with the current, uh, paradigm. So let's, uh, touch on a couple more, uh, basically as a way of saying, look, we need 
there's room for a new idea here, uh, new thinking, and that we don't actually have all the answers, as you mentioned earlier, that the uh, in Victorian times, some people thought that they did. But the current crop of cosmologies, I, I find them to be, materialism included, to be incomplete, and in some cases actually the product of desperation. I'm thinking string theory here, that's what that feels like to me. And um, everything from the Big Bang uh, to the steady state cosmos, the quasi-steady state, many worlds interpretation, you name it, there, there's problems with each one of them. And it's not that you're saying that you're, uh, what you set out in digital consciousness is is somehow the finished product, but it's just more complete and it accounts for more phenomena than any of the other cosmologies. In fact, towards the end of the book, you set it out in a sort of bullet point basis saying, okay, how many observations does this cosmology account for? And actually materialism's way down the list, isn't it? It performs really badly. Oh yeah. And, and this was, this is the kind of ultimate premise of the book is if you, Consider the entire space of things that a theory of everything has to explain. You have to account for, you know, getting out of the field of pure science, you know, what's the nature of matter, for example, and talk about things like um, what's a near-death experience, what's a spiritual experience, why do some people have uh, precognition, you know, why are identical twins... Uh, brought up in the same environment with the same genetics have completely different sets of values sometime. You know, what, what's this Mandela effect? Why is the universe appear to be really finely tuned? You know, and then over in the scientific realm, you've got, uh, quantum entanglement. Nobody understands how that works, uh, or the observer effect in, in some science experiments. So from metaphysics to physics, there's a whole set of anomalies or kind of unexplained things. And if you think of that as sort of a, a, an anomaly space and you think of a Venn diagram, and this is, this is what I do in the end of the book, there are certain theories that you can draw circles around some of those anomalies and say, this theory explains that pretty well, or at least it explains it, you know, to some level of satisfaction. Materialism, for example, focuses on one thing, the nature of matter. And at the end of the day, it gets it wrong. Um, it used to think it was one thing. And then in the early 1900s, it thought it was something else. And then after quark theory, it thought it was something else. So even deterministic materialism has to keep changing as experiments dig deeper into what the nature of matter is. But that's really the only thing of these 14 different anomalies that I picked spread out across this, you know, vast space of mysteries, deterministic materialism only answers one of them, or only addresses one of them, and string theory only addresses two. It addresses that one and the unification of general relativity and quantum mechanics. It doesn't say anything about what spiritual experiences are, what dark matter is, what the observer effect is, um, and, and those kinds of things. Um, religions, Eastern philosophies, they address some of these things. They address what are near-death experiences. They address spiritual experiences. But they have nothing to say about the nature of matter other than, you know, God created everything, for example. Um, they don't have anything to say about why it is the way it is. They don't have anything to say about, um, you know, quantum entanglement or the Mandela effect or these, these kinds of things or why does a placebo work. But... You know, as you, as you keep on looking at different ideas, different frameworks or theories, the, the sort of traditional 
simulation theory, the one that's like the movie The Matrix that Nick Bostrom wrote a paper about. You're probably familiar with the uh, Are We Living in a Simulation? It's the one that's often referenced today when you read pop science articles on uh, on some of these ideas. Um, that explains a lot of stuff. That That actually does cover things, but it again doesn't cover the spiritual side of things. It doesn't cover you know, why near-death experiences across all different cultures and different ages and genders um, have such commonalities and how people are profoundly changed after having them. doesn't explain that at all. In fact, it kind of makes no sense, you know, to, to bring that into the fold in the traditional post-human simulation theory argument. So the only thing that explains all of this stuff is... Digital consciousness, you know, my theory, also Tom Campbell's My Big Toe is, is very similar. I uh, had a, uh, uh, a podcast uh, recording recently with him where I realized there are a few small differences between the way he looks at things and the way I look at things. And it was actually kind of heartening to hear, you know, we, we're still thinking a little bit differently, but um, the fundamentals of it, both of, both of our ideas, um, you know, explain uh, all of these anomalies. So, yeah, when you look at it that way, you know, a, a framework that, that tries to make sense out of everything has to cover all of these different things. And uh, deterministic materialism, a lot of the science theories, they really don't. String theory, it's just, uh, you know, it's just an idea. It's just math at this point. In fact, it's kind of interesting what constitutes science? You know, a lot of people use uh, uh, Karl Popper's demarcation criteria. Is it testable? Is it falsifiable? Is it observable? Is it predictable? Is it repeatable? Um, and, they, and they apply these criteria to determine whether something, you know, passes the sniff, sniff test of a valid scientific theory. And interestingly enough, things like, you know, field theory are not observable. You know, the Big Bang is observable, but it's not repeatable. The many worlds theory, which, as I understand it from some of the the uh, things that I've read, more scientists than not believe in that one versus the uh, sort of Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics. That many worlds theory doesn't pass the testable test, the falsifiable test, the observable test, or the predictable test. So when you apply scientific demarcation criteria to what is considered acceptable areas of study in science, most of them fail. And and actually the you know the simulation theories and digital consciousness, you know, they, they are testable to some level and they do have some predictive capabilities. And the fact that they're based on a real, you know, at least in, in my book, it's based on a real scientific method which is called abductive logic. Best fit to you know, to the uh, uh, to to the evidence uh, theory that best fits the evidence. It's it's the same kind of thing that we apply in the medical world. Take a bunch of tests, figure out what um, ailment best fits that ailment, and that's probably what the person has, and then you treat it. Um, and that's a very scientific process. And that's all I'm doing too. So, yeah, at the end of the day. Um, <laughs> the, the the line between philosophy and science is incredibly blurry. And, you know, for anybody to say one thing is science and one thing is philosophy um, hasn't really thought much about what science really is. Well, probably the main reason that we take waking reality to be fundamental is, and, and, and not, for example, like a dream or one of these other subjective experiences 
supernatural or uh, spiritual experiences that we feel that are unique to us and that, that therefore we can question you is that real did that actually happen you know like if you have a dream did in what sense did the dream quote unquote happen i maintain it absolutely happened as much as you stubbing your toe uh on the uh a curb stone you know during during the day but anyway again fundamental reason we take waking reality is fundamental is consensus validation that yeah. is that you and i agree that I don't know if you're sat at a desk now i'm sat at a desk but if we were in the same space together it'd be like there's a tree there's the sky is blue some clouds over there a red car just drove past and what have you and that lends credence to this idea that, that the waking reality is the fundamental ground of reality but interestingly and there's we all have again this is another subjective experience that we have and therefore we tend to devalue it because of that but the consensus is not 100 percent. and when you say i hear people having conversations like uh, oh yeah, that was hilarious that night, you know, when uh, Dave spilt his beer over his new shirt, you know, that was such a nice blue shirt. It, it, it wasn't blue. It's, it's not, his shirt wasn't blue. It was purple. No, no, it was definitely blue. And people just think, you know, you're misremembering things. But we all have the experience of having genuinely different experiences. You alluded to the Mandela effect. But I think that these, if we can call them glitches in the matrix, these anomalous events and effects, such, you know, other ones would be, say, time slips, synchronicity, deja vu whether they're happening quote-unquote on purpose or not what they do is they're offering us glimpses of a wider and deeper reality and i actually maintain that they are actually happening for a reason this is not an accident as it were yeah i sure sure i i 100 agree with you greg i i think you know we, we can talk about like what's really going on and what explains it and that's what you know kind of the focus of the book is but then then you ask the question well why do these things happen and I, I think you're right. I think it's giving a glimpse of uh, a, a greater reality. And maybe it's because the system, God, again, all that there is, has determined that we've gotten to the point where we can move to the next level. We've, you know, we've established, a, you know, maybe, uh, you know, a, a scientific framework in our in our minds that give us a process that we can go through um, to consider things and rule things out based on evidence and stuff like that. So now that we have that, let's take a look at the bigger reality and try to assimilate some of those things. And so let's give a little hint um, on on those things. And, and those are the anomalies that you're talking about. Yeah, the idea of consensus. I think about this one a lot. And I, I use a lot of times the analogy of a video game because it's something that people can generally generally relate to so a game like uh, i don't know a, a multiplayer online game uh, star wars has some there's world of warcraft and things like that you know in that game if you're in that game you have an avatar you're you're you're, you're fighting a bunch of monsters or aliens or whatever it is everybody who's playing in that game is kind of seeing the same thing so they have a consensus they all believe that you know, that that's what's really going on in the game. Um, and these games have a, uh, what's called a physics engine. So it's a, a way, uh, it's basically a set of, you know, it's a set of mathematical routines that um, help determine how, th how things move when you throw them or the effect of gravity or whatever. And so as long as things kind of make sense and, and, you know, it makes sense according to that physics engine, 
you know, you feel very comfortable. Now, what were to happen if in that game you see a bunch of, uh, you know, aircraft going by and the aircraft keeps on following the same patterns and, and all makes total sense. Um, and then all of a sudden you see one that's just hovering. Um, and maybe it makes a right angle turn or something like that. But you're seeing this in the game. You're not going to, you're not going to dismiss that. You're, you're probably going to say, Oh, you know, the programmers put something, you know, interesting into, into the experience of the game. Now, this is a new thing. This is a new artifact or a new, uh, experience that we have to learn how to deal with and you would do that because you know that it's just a game so why don't we view the anomalous things that happen in our reality the same way uh, people see ufos for example and they say well they, they violate physics or they violate laws of aerodynamics or whatever so they therefore they can't be real but all they are is just a subjective experience of something that is running in our simulation it's it's really no different so a lot of these anomalies are you know just basically things that we haven't um accounted for thought about um whatever i think of every experience that we have including the dreams that you talked about as that's what's real that's what's you know all we know is our subjective experience we don't really know what happened yesterday you know we think we do we recall things but uh, there have been tremendous studies that show that memory is faulty, and like you said, people will remember things differently, partly because when you remember something, what you're doing is remembering the last time that you recalled it. And if you have changed it a little bit because of a suggestion or because of some confluence of experiences that you had, a show that you watched or something like that, and you, you start remembering something different, then you reinforce those uh, those memories. Um, so the only thing that you know is what's happening right now, and that's the case with dreams, too. The consensus idea is critical to this philosophy, um, and I think of experiences as being, you know, as somewhere in the um, spectrum of level of consensus. So a, a pure dream or a daydream or something like that, that's kind of a consensus of one. It's just one person experiencing that. But our apparent physical reality, the thing that we call our waking state, like you say, that's um, almost 100% consensus. We all usually agree on what we see. Now, you know, some people are colorblind. Some people hear differently. Uh, seem, some people perceive things differently, remember things differently. So it really isn't 100%. Um, it's in the 99 point something percent consensus. But then there's this stuff in the middle. Um you know, people have had mutual lucid dreams where people separate, completely separated, um, dreaming, getting in control of their dream, meeting up. Then they take notes on what they said to each other and what they experienced, and they compare those notes later on. Um, some of these studies have been done with good scientific rigor that show that there's a consensus of two. <laughs> so that's somewhere in the middle. And so there's there's possibility of, say, group consensus and all along this spectrum. And what do you do with those things? Um, the fact that there's the possibility to have things that seem dreamlike that have more than a one a consensus of one person is really profound. It's telling you that that's real. That's much more real than, you know, than, than you thought it was. And so I think the same applies to our dreams. It's just a subjective experience that we're having. 
it just happens to be one where um, our awareness is not in this physical matter reality where the consensus is enforced. Our awareness is something somewhere else when we're having that dream. Yeah, I know that uh, we we talked about this off air. That I I recently sent you an article that I did an interview with uh, Rory McSweeney, who was a former guest on the show here, talking about lucid dreaming. And in his book, said basically he came to an understanding that what we call dreams and what we call everyday 3D waking reality are actually made from the same stuff, woven from the same fabric. Mm -hmm. And lucid dream being a dream, we kind of wake up within it and realize that you're dreaming and actually find that you you can act in the way that you feel that you can in so-called waking reality, but you can do that within your dream, highlights the fact that, that these things, these experiences are ultimately subjective anyway. And that lends credence to the idea that maybe we take the reality that you and I are both in now and the person listening to this is in, we take the, that reality as fundamental, but essentially because life lasts longer than a dream, as it were. But this may in fact be a, a very, very similar virtual experience. We just happen to be awoken within, as it were. Uh, and certainly people's experience of stepping out of this reality temporarily, you know, coming back, you know, whether it be uh, through near-death experiences or other forms of out-of-body experience, sometimes with psychedelics, that tend to indicate that. They realize, yeah, well, this is its not everything. It's not what it appears to be. Is being, sorry, this being the everyday waking reality, it is not the, the fundamental state of things. It's just one state of many, one experience of many, one form of having experience among many. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and I, I think that uh, the the things that you mentioned, like the near death experiences, those are real subjective experiences, and you could you could pass them off as uh, fantasy, perhaps. But when they happen to, you know, the, the same kinds of things happen to different cultures, or when they happen to children who don't have the benefit of uh, any kind of expectation because of what they've read about this stuff, um, then you have to start taking this uh, a little more seriously. I, I think a lot of times about the, just the nature of people um, accepting different ideas. Uh, you know, if somebody were to come up to you on the street and tell you, hey, I just had a... <clears throat> You know, a precognition that the uh, stock market is going to crash tomorrow, um, and y you would just kind of like shake your head and, and move on with your day, and probably not take any action. Um, but if a friend of yours said that, and then you know several other people said it, would you then pay attention? You know, at what point do you take um, the 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 information that multiple people have had uh, a kind of, uh, you know, out-of-the-norm experience, uh, maybe you call it paranormal, um, at what point do you take that and say, well, it, there's a confluence of, of thinking here, maybe I should take it seriously. And it really is astounding how far we have to go before we accept some of those things in general. Now, I'm not saying believe everything you hear obviously you have to have a, a skeptical mind and, and a little bit of critical thinking applied to it but we tend to i think go to the extreme of demanding you know foolproof evidence before we believe something new and i think it's i think it's okay to listen to people's experiences and 
make some conclusions about what's going on with, uh, you know, with, with that kind of information. Well, as Scotty used to say on Star Trek, you know, you can't defy the laws of physics. <laughs> and it's like, well, laws are man-made or human-made at least. And all this talk about sort of, oh, well, that violates, you mentioned UFOs, violates the laws of physics. Well, if there are things left, right, and center violating the laws of physics, maybe we should think again about the laws of physics and expand them. Uh, Absolutely. But, yeah. And as a result of taking that attitude, uh, mainstream materialist science dismisses a hell of a lot of human experience. Uh, for, it's like dreams, for example, not probably just because it's subjective, but there's all sorts of other anomalous phenomena. I like saying that anomalous phenomena that uh, get sidelined because they don't fit uh, the mainstream paradigm. Um, but when that turns out to be more than 50 percent of experience and sometimes a lot more, then I say we've got questions to answer. And I think uh, the UFO phenomena is a very good example of this. I think that way more people, the majority, have had or are having or will have some kind of experience, anomalous experience, that quote-unquote defies the laws of physics, that they don't talk about, they don't relate to anyone else because for fear of ridicule or whatever, or because they've been told from year dot that this is unscientific, it's mumbo-jumbo, it's pseudo-religious nonsense. I think that that's actually the majority of people. I, I think you're right, and um, I'll just, you know, I'll I'll go out on a limb here and and say it. I I've had uh, a UFO experience myself. I I had one with about a hundred other people. Um, we, we, you know, were watching these uh, these lights out in the desert, um, and you know, using some kind of mil spec uh, goggles where you could see satellites going overhead and and things like that. And it was, it was just great to be out there. And I had no expectations that we were actually going to see anything anomalous. And then all of a sudden, these glowing orbs came across the sky in front of everybody's view. And, um, you know, I and, and people that I were with were, you know, were, were people who are logically trained and scientifically trained, um, you know, and we, we know what planes look like. We know what... Uh, drones look like you know we know what uh, chinese lanterns look like chinese lanterns go up they don't they don't go horizontally there wasn't wind that would force a chinese lantern to to go horizontally the way they did um and these these things there's no known explanation for them so by definition they're they're ufos um now i don't know you know what what happened there so i i had the feeling that there was that, that again it fell into this realm of there's a subjective experience that we're all being shown. The hundred of us who were, were there all saw the same thing. And um, whether it was the system showing it to us, whether it was really some hoax, some very elaborate hoax that somebody put together uh, that made it look like something that nobody's ever seen before, okay, that's possible too. Um, but it's certainly possible that it was, again, just like a subjective experience, like I mentioned, that could happen in a... Uh, a video game, you wouldn't think anything of it because you'd think, well, the the programmers of the game just put that in there. We don't think that way because we, you know, we're conditioned to think that there's only a certain set of things that that uh, fit reality. Uh, but when you let go of that and realize that that's never been the case before, you know, in the 1800s, people thought that rocks falling out of the sky was um, 
fraudulent. All the, the reports of, of uh, you know, meteorites hitting the Earth uh, was, was the way people think of UFOs today. It was impossible because we didn't have a theory for how that, that could happen. Um, and anybody who reported such a thing was considered a crackpot. Um, and then, you know, along as, as time went on, we realized, oh, well, these are, uh, you know, meteors, they're particles or, or rocks from outer space or whatever. And we had a, a framework for them. So again, it's, it's just, you know, the experience are not something that we expect. It doesn't mean they're not real. And it doesn't mean that there isn't something behind them that is, um, you know, very interesting and profound. And uh, it seems like when you open your mind to that, you have a tendency to, to see these things more often. I think the reason is because you've evolved your mind a little bit to be open to it. And again, I don't mean being so open that you believe everything. Um, I just mean being open to the possibility of things that are outside the kind of deterministic realm. Um, yes, fascinating stuff and, and uh, shows that there are a lot of unknowns and I think that's okay. That concludes part one of our interview. Be sure to tune in next week part two if you enjoyed the show check out the website which is legalizefreedom.com that's legalize-freedom.com where you'll find an archive of programs offering alternative views on a wide range of topics including politics and economics energy and environment culture spirituality history and the nature of reality until next time i'm greg moffat and you've been listening to legalizefreedom.com 